0: CHAPTER NINE PART ONE OF MARGARET SANGER BY MARGARET SANGER THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. CHAPTER NINE PART ONE THE WOMAN REBEL O oh, you daughters of the West, O oh, you young and elder daughters, O oh, you maidens and you women, never must you be divided, In our ranks you move united, pioneers, oh pioneers. Walt Whitman The New York was a nice ship, and it was not too wintry to walk about on deck. After the children were safely in bed, I paced round and round, and absorbed into my being that quiet which comes to you at sea. That it was New Year's Eve added to the poignancy of my emotions, but did not obscure the faith within. I knew something must be done to rescue those women who were voiceless. Someone had to express with white-hot intensity the conviction that they must be empowered to decide for themselves when they should fulfill the supreme function of motherhood. They had to be made aware of how they were being shackled and roused to mutiny. To this end, I conceived the idea of a magazine to be called the Woman Rebel, dedicated to the interests of working women. Often I had thought of Vashti as the first woman rebel in history. Once, when her husband, King Ahasuerus, had been showing off to his people his fine linens, his pillars of marble, his beds of gold and silver, and all his riches, he had commanded that his beautiful Queen Vashti also be put on view. But she had declined to be exhibited as a possession or chattel. Because of her disobedience, which might set a very bad example to other wives, she had been cast aside and Ahasuerus had chosen a new bride, the meek and gentle Esther. I wanted each woman to be a rebellious Vashti, not an Esther. Was she to be merely a washboard with only one song, one song? Surely she should be allowed to develop all her potentialities. Feminists were trying to free her from the new economic ideology, but were doing nothing to free her from her biological subservience to man, which was the true cause of her enslavement. Before gathering friends around me for that help which I must have in stirring women to sedition, before asking them to believe, I had to chart my own course— Should I bring the cause to the attention of the people by headlines and front pages? Should I follow my own compulsion, regardless of extreme consequences? I fully recognized I must refrain from acts which I could not carry through. So many movements had been issuing defiances without any ultimate goal, shooting off a popgun here, a pop-gun there, and finally shooting themselves to death. They had been too greatly resembling froth, too noisy with the screech of tin horns and other cheap instruments, instead of the deeper sounds of an outraged, angry, serious people. With as crystal a view as that which had come to me after the death of Mrs. Sachs, when I had renounced nursing forever, I saw the path ahead in its civic, national, and even international direction, a panorama of things to be. Fired with this vision, I went into the lounge and wrote and wrote, page after page, until the hours of daylight. Having settled the principles, I left the details to work themselves out. I realized that a price must be paid for honest thinking, a price for everything. Though I did not know exactly how I was to prepare myself, what turn events might take, or what I might be called upon to do, the future in its larger aspects has actually developed as I saw it that night. The same thoughts kept repeating themselves over and over during the remainder of the otherwise uneventful voyage. As soon as possible, after reaching New York, I rented an inexpensive little flat on Post Avenue near Dykeman Street, so far out on the upper end of Manhattan that even the Broadway subway trains managed to burrow their way into sunlight and fresh air. My dining room was my office, the table my desk. A new movement was starting, and the baby had to have a name. It did not belong to socialism, nor was it in the labor field, and it had much more to it than just the prevention of conception. As a few companions were sitting with me one evening, we debated in turn voluntary parenthood. Voluntary motherhood, the new motherhood, constructive generation, and new generation. The terms already in use, neo Malthusianism, family limitation, and conscious generation, seemed stuffy and lacked popular appeal. The word control was good, but I did not like limitation. That was too limiting. I was not advocating a one-child or two-child system, as in France, nor did I wholeheartedly agree with the English neo-Malthusians whose concern was almost entirely with limitation for economic reasons. My idea of control was bigger and freer. I wanted family in it, yet family control did not sound right. We tried population control, race control, and birth rate control. Then, someone suggested, drop the rate. Birth control was the answer. We knew we had it. Our work for that day was done, and everybody picked up his hat and went home. The baby was named. When I first announced that I was going to publish a magazine... "'Where are you going to get the money?' was volleyed at me from all sides. I did not know, but I was certain of its coming somehow. Equally important was moral support. Those same young friends and I founded a little society, grandly titled the National Birth Control League, sought aid from enthusiasts for other causes— turning first to the feminists, because they seemed our natural allies. Armed with leaflets, we went to Cooper Union to tell them that in the woman rebel, they would have an opportunity to express their sentiments. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the feminist leader, was trying to inspire women in this country to have a deeper meaning in their lives, which to her signified more than getting the vote. Nevertheless, at that time I struck no responsive chord from her or from such intelligent co-workers as Crystal Eastman, Marie Howe, or Henrietta Rodman. It seemed unbelievable they could be serious in occupying themselves with what I regarded as trivialities when mothers within a stone's throw of their meetings were dying shocking deaths. Who cared whether a woman kept her Christian name, Mary Smith, instead of Mrs. John Jones? Who cared whether she wore her wedding ring? Who cared about her demand for the right to work? Hundreds of thousands of laundresses, cloakmakers, scrubwomen, servants, telephone girls, shop workers would gladly have changed places with the feminists in return for the right to have leisure, to be lazy a little now and then. When I suggested that the basis of feminism might be the right to be a mother regardless of church or state, their inherited prejudices were instantly aroused. They were still subject to the age-old masculine atmosphere compounded of protection and dominance. Disappointed in that quarter, I turned to the socialists and trade unionists, trusting they would appreciate the importance of family limitation in the kind of civilization towards which they were stumbling. Notices were sent to the masses, Mother Earth, the Call, the Arm and Hammer, the Liberator, all names echoing the spirit which had quickened them. Shortly, I had several hundred subscriptions to the Woman Rebel, paid up in advance at the rate of a dollar a year, the period for which I had made my plans. Proceeds were to go into a separate revolving account, scrupulously kept. Unlike so many ephemeral periodicals, mine was not to flare up and spark out before it had functioned. Leaving its subscribers with only a few issues when they were entitled to more. Eventually, we had a mailing list of about 2,000, but 5, 10, even 50 copies often went in a bundle to be distributed without charge to some labor organization. I was solely responsible for the magazine financially, legally, and morally. I was editor manager, circulation department, bookkeeper. I paid the printer's bill. But any cause that has not helpers is losing out. So many men and women secretaries, stenographers, clerks, used to come in of an evening that I could not find room for all. Some typed, some addressed envelopes, some went to libraries and looked up things for us to use. Some wrote articles, though seldom signing their own names. Not one penny ever had to go for salaries because service was given freely. In March 1914 appeared the first issue of The Woman Rebel, eight pages on cheap paper, copied from the French style, mailed first class in the city, and expressed outside. My initial declaration of the right of the individual was the slogan, No gods, no masters. Gods, not God. I wanted that word to go beyond religion and also stop turning idols, heroes, leaders into gods. I defined a woman's duty to look the world in the face with a go to hell look in the eyes, to have an idea, to speak and act in defiance of convention. It was a marvelous time to say what we wished. All America was a Hyde Park corner as far as criticism and challenging thought were concerned. We advocated direct action and took up the burning questions of the day. With a fine sense of irony, we put anti-capitalist soapbox oratory in print. I do not know whether the financiers we denounced would have been tolerant or resentful of our onslaughts had they read them, or as full of passion for their cause as we for ours. Perhaps they too will have forgotten that emotion now. My daily routine always started with looking over the pile of mail and one morning my attention was caught by an unstamped official envelope from the New York Post Office. I tore it open. Dear Madam, You are hereby notified that the solicitor of the Post Office Department has decided that the woman rebel for March 1914 is unmailable under Section 489 Postal Laws and Regulations, E. M. Morgan, Postmaster. I reread the letter. It was so unexpected that at first the significance did not sink in. I had given no contraceptive information. I had merely announced that I intended to do so. Then I began to realize that no mention was made of any special article or articles. I wrote Mr. Morgan and asked him to state what specifically had offended, thereby assisting me in my future course. His reply simply repeated that the March issue was unmailable. I had anticipated objections from religious bodies, but believed with Father anything you want can be accomplished by putting a little piece of paper into the ballot box. Therefore, To have our insignificant magazine stopped by the big, strong United States government seemed so ludicrous as almost to make us feel important. To the newspaper world, this was news, but not one of the dailies picked it out as an infringement of a free press. The Sun carried a headline, Woman Rebel Barred from Mails," and underneath the comment, Too bad. The case should be reversed. They should be barred from her and spelled differently. Many times I studied Section 211 of the federal statutes, under which the post office was acting. This penal clause of the Comstock law had been left hanging in Washington like the dried shell of a tortoise. Its grip had even been tightened on the moral side. In case the word obscene should prove too vague, its definition had been enlarged to include the prevention of conception and the causing of abortion under one and the same heading. To me, it was outrageous that information regarding motherhood, which was so generally called sacred, should be classed with pornography. Nevertheless, I had not broken the law because it did not prohibit discussion of contraception, merely giving advice. I harbored a burning desire to undermine that law. But if I continued publication, I was making myself liable to a federal indictment and a possible prison term of five years, plus a fine of $5,000. I had to choose between abandoning the woman rebel changing its tone, or continuing as I had begun. Though I had no wish to become a martyr, with no hesitation I followed the last-named course. I gathered our little group together. At first we assumed Comstock had stopped the entire issue before delivery, but apparently he had not, because only the a to ms which had been mailed in the local post office, had been confiscated. We took a fresh lot downtown, slipped three into the chute, four in another, walked miles around the city so that no single box contained more than a few copies. The same procedure had to be pursued in succeeding months. Sometimes daylight caught me, with one or more assistants, still tramping from the printers and dropping the copies, piece by piece, into various boxes and chutes. I felt the government was absurd and tyrannical to make us do this for no good purpose. I could not get used to its methods then. I have not yet, and probably never shall. The woman rebel produced extraordinary results— Striking vibrations that brought contacts, messages, inquiries, pamphlets, books, even some money. I corresponded with the leading feminists of Europe. Ellen Key, then at the height of her fame, Olive Schreiner, Mrs. Pankhurst, Rosa Luxemburg, Adele Schreiber, Clara Zetkin, Rosika Schwimmer, Frau Maria Stritt, But I also heard from sources and groups I had hardly known existed. Theosophist, New Thought. Rosicrucian, Spiritualist, Mental Scientist. It was not alone from New York, but from the highways and byways of North, South, East, and West that inspiration came. After the second number, the focus had been birth control. Within six months, we had received over 10,000 letters, arriving in accelerating volume. Most of them read, Will your magazine give accurate and reliable information to prevent conception? This I could not print. Realizing by now it was going to be a fairly big fight, I was careful not to break the law on such a trivial point. It would have been ridiculous to have a single letter reach the wrong destination. Therefore, I sent no contraceptive facts through the mails. However, I had no intention of giving up this primary purpose. I began sorting and arranging the material I had brought back from France, complete with formulas and drawings, to be issued in a pamphlet where I could treat the subject with more delicacy than in a magazine, writing it for women of extremely circumscribed vocabularies. A few hundred dollars were needed to finance publication of Family Limitation, as I named it, and I approached Theodore Schroeder, a lawyer of standing and an ardent advocate of free speech. He had been left a fund by a certain Dr. Foote, who had produced a book "'On Borning Better Babies,' "'and I thought my pamphlet might qualify as a beneficiary. "'Dr. Abraham Brill was just then bringing out "'a translation of Freud, "'in whom Schroeder was much interested. "'He asked whether I had been psychoanalyzed. "'What is psychoanalysis?' "'He looked at me critically, as from a great height.' You ought to be analyzed as to your motives. If, after six weeks, you still wish to publish this pamphlet, I'll pay for 10,000 copies. Well, do you think I won't want to go on? I don't only think so. I'm quite sure of it. Then I won't be analyzed. I took the manuscript to a printer well known for his liberal tendencies and courage. He read the contents page by page and said, You'll never get this set up in any shop in New York. It's a sing-sing job. Every one of the twenty printers whom I tried to persuade was afraid to touch it. It was impossible ever, it seemed, to get into print the contents of that pamphlet. Meanwhile, following the March issue, the May and July numbers of the woman rebel had also been banned. In reply to each of the formal notices, I inquired which particular article or articles had incurred disapproval, but could obtain no answer. At that time, I visualized the birth control movement as part of the fight for freedom of speech. How much would the postal authorities suppress? what were they really after? I was determined to prod and goad until some definite knowledge was obtained as to what was obscene, lewd, and lascivious. End of chapter 9, part 1.